what we have done to get to that bifurcation, that problem, is we have magnified Ephesians 2, 6 to 8, and we have suppressed all of those texts that talk about what we have been delivered for. And we have, we have not paid sufficient attention to the fact that if we don't walk into what we were delivered for, we weren't delivered at all. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Worldly success or biblical honor? What does that look like in today's world? It's hard to navigate those two things very well, especially today when worldly success creeps into the church. We need to go back and see how things have morphed over time. And to do so, we need to understand the cultural operating system of the New Testament. Our cultural operating system today is about status, influence, and success that is seen in numbers and influence. But biblically, it was different. Life is really a web of relationships, and today we are talking about the subject of patronage, honor. And we talked a little bit about this in our last episode, as well as the subjects of kinship, those who are our kin, our family, our bloodline, and purity. What did purity look like in the ancient world? You see, honor, patronage, kinship, and purity acted as the GPS of the ancient world. It was how they navigated their relationships, responsibilities, and obligations. It was how they achieved status and how they got stuff done. It's similar to today, although the terms have changed and morphed into something altogether different, but the concepts are still there. Instead of honor, we talk about following and influence. Instead of patronage, we talk about who we know. And kinship is about who gets allegiance in our lives, and it's about our tribe, whether that's politically, religious, ethnic, socioeconomically, etc. And purity? Well, that one is a bit more about how you present yourself as normal and clean to the world. We'll be talking about that more in a bit, because it's the one that most Westerners have a hard time grasping at first until they zoom in to the current applications. These four practices honor, patronage, kinship, and purity, came together to form an ancient GPS and showed you who you were, how things got done, and how you could have others think more highly of you and the like. As I said in our last episode, you and I talk about theology, but we live in a web of relationships that have responsibilities, obligations, and expectations. It's true. And it's learning how to navigate those relationships in a way that brings glory to God. When we recognize this cultural GPS, we're able to find our way around the New Testament more accurately because they are the keys that unlock much of the world of the New Testament, enabling us to marvel, apply, and live in it more comfortably and confidently. I wanted you to hear this conversation because I want you to fulfill the mission of God where you're at. 
Our culture has begun to shift incredibly over the past several years, but Jesus is still the same. However, when I look at the church today, I see so many people trying to find their way in church, to find success, to get numbers, to build up the church, and they don't think about how to navigate the various social relationships that are there. It's just assumed. And they don't think about why they're influenced to build this church, to portray themselves as successful in the eyes of the world. And there is this pressure to perform, to produce in ways that are not biblical, nor is it fruitful or faithful. That's why I wanted to have David De Silva on the show today. And we're continuing our conversation on honor, patronage, kinship, and purity. Because when we do understand this GPS of the ancient world, we can see our world today more accurately. I do want you to fulfill the mission of God where you're at, and I want your church to fulfill the same. I have been blessed to pastor three different churches, and each one was incredibly challenging as there weren't many resources and they were in steep decline. And in two of those instances, they were a short time away from closing. But each one, by God's amazing grace, was revitalized as God's people prayed, humbled themselves, and put into practice many of the core truths that we lay out in Apollos Watered. They weren't large megachurches by any stretch of the imagination, but they were effective, they were fruitful, and they were faithful in their walks with Jesus. I want to see you and your church thrive and become true lighthouses for Jesus and his kingdom. I know that you can. By partnering with Apollos Watered and putting into practice the perspectives and practices that you learn here, you'll be able to move the needle from surviving to thriving, to becoming the healthy church that God desires it to be, to be the healthy Christian that God desires you to be. So let's get growing as we listen into this conversation with Dr. David De Silva. Happy listening. Let's move on to patronage. Now, I, I went to the patronage symposium and you had zoomed in on that. And I, I remember going, sharing this with people. Hey, I'm going to the patronage symposium. And they went, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> what in the world is patronage? And how is that even remotely important today in our world? So show us how it was important in the first century and how he actually translates, actually shapes the scripture. But actually, in some ways, uh, we need to recover some of these ideas of patronage. Go for it. Um, so in the first century, actually, in, in most of our history, um, there was not a free market. And there was not a sense that I can get what I want and what my family needs by working my job, taking my money, going out. And buying whatever I need. Um, generally, people who were, shall we say, more economically vulnerable depended on the, the, the good graces of those who were more economically um, and, and politically uh, uh, rooted and positioned to be sure that they would get what they needed and their families would get what they needed. Um, take that away from the level of subsistence and survival, it was also a, a world in which, you know, 
going to the best university and getting good letters of recommendations wasn't going to open the doors to a career in politics or you name it. I'm not really good with thinking about other examples, but let's just stick with a career in, in politics in the city or in the larger empire. But personal connections would. Now, we hate that now. We call it nepotism or what have you. It's not what you know, it's who you know. But back in the day, it was who you knew, and that was okay, because that's how the world worked. And within these relationships, um, those with the connections and those with the resources would, would be inclined to give and to share and to make opportunities. For other people to help them to assist them this was what was expected of people with influence and position and resources and it was honorable for them to do so so you can't really divorce this from honor it was honorable to do so and those who received such assistance or whatever knew that it was honorable to repay those favors now they would not be able to repay them with equal favors, but they could repay them with equal commitment to the good of the other person. And if, 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 if a wealthy patron has bailed myself and my family out from starvation following a ruinous crop or a period of drought or what have you, I was going to find ways to be an honorable person myself to give back what I could to that patron. I can at least spread the word widely about how he helped us, how we would have perished if he had not opened his storehouses for us. I can look for opportunities to return service to him. Or it might be that at some point, let's just go to first century BC Judea, he's going to need uh, soldiers to defend against the Seleucid kings coming in and invading. Man, I'm good with a pitchfork. I'm going to go behind him and I'm going to help. I'm going to give what I can because he gave what he could. And his, uh, the, the value of his uh, benefit uh, needs to be matched uh, with the value of, with, with the, so the fervor of my gratitude. Now, some of that's going to be a little bit exaggerated and what have you, but, but the, the, the essential ethos is reciprocity. And that guy didn't bail my family out because he thought someday he's going to pay me back and this is going to be worth it. He bailed me out because it was honorable to do so. And he thought me worthy of receiving his help, which is not, uh, his resources are not infinite. There are other families he was not able to help because he helped me. Um, but if I'm to be an honorable person, I'm not going to show myself disloyal to him. I'm not going to then start, uh, uh, you know, uh, give whatever strength I have to advance his rival's agenda rather than his agenda in my village or what have you. Uh, and so I think this is really the essential part for hearing the New Testament. Because... And we could talk about specific, you know, human relationships of, of, of sharing and reciprocity in, uh, in the New Testament. The, the story of the centurion who built a synagogue for the community in Capernaum is a great story to look at for 
or how these webs of indebtedness work and and the way that the the elders of Capernaum uh, use their influence with Jesus to do a good turn for someone who did such a monumental turn a turn for their community but but we could also then think about how Paul talks about what God has done for us first as creator but then as redeemer in Christ or how the author of Hebrews talks about what God in Christ did for us and therefore what is honorable for us to do now when it first becomes costly for us to be loyal to such a, a magnificent patron, to someone who has given us so much, how could we now live in such a way that brings dishonor rather than honor to him? So this is, this, this is where I think the cultural background out of which Paul articulated a theology of grace and and that's the key word in all of these relationships grace for us is a relation is a is a a religious word grace for paul and all of his hearers was an everyday word grace was what patrons and benefactors showed to those whom they helped grace was the gift that was given grace was what i gave back we still have this vestigially when we say grace. It's a prayer of gratitude, of thanksgiving. Um, and, and so when we when we read about charis, when we read about grace in the New Testament, that's a word, a word with a social world and a social ethos so clearly attached to it um, uh, that none of Paul's hearers could have missed it. And we miss it because from our cultural location, which is also just a post-Reformation religious location, when we hear free grace, we hear gift with no obligations. No one in Paul's audience would have heard that ever. They would have heard a gift freely given, a gift, a magnificent given to those least deserving, but in no way a gift without obligation. And my favorite text to pull out for this is 2 Corinthians 5.15. And I think, I'll just say, I hope all your listeners find room in their theology for this verse. He died for all so that those who continued living might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised on their behalf. A perfect reciprocity text. Why did Jesus die? to pay for my sins. Why did Jesus die to wholly reorient my life to live for him instead of myself? All right. Here endeth the monologue. <laughs> okay. That lies in the face of the post-Reformation idea. Grace, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not among, you know, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. How do we understand, though, this idea of reciprocity with responsibility? I mean, with lack of responsibility, because what you're saying, I understand. There is this idea of, okay, yes, free grace. People are like, oh, no, it's it's entirely by grace you're saved. But if that's the case and there's no strings attached, why your life doesn't represent that, then you're really, do you really understand that grace? If you've received it and you just keep going on, 
there's an obedience that's expected. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's this idea of you are then beholden. You've been bought at a price. You're owned by him. You are not your own. So how do we help people to see the difference between this idea? For it is by grace you have been saved, honoring, and and if I get this wrong, please tell me, honoring this idea of by grace you have been saved, not by works, but differentiating it between this idea of reciprocity, which seems like a work on one level. How do we juxtapose those two seeming on the surface competing contradictory things? Yeah. Yeah. You're not getting it wrong at all. Um, Cause I'm a genius, David. <laughs> In my own mind. So, so I will agree. <laughs> oh, my wife is like, Oh, mute. <laughs> mute right now. Just stop, honey. <laughs> You're not a genius. You can't even oh. find the genius bar at the Mac store. Anyway, yeah, go so ahead. What we have done to get to that bifurcation, that problem, is we have magnified Ephesians 2, eight and 6 nine, yeah. to 8, and we have suppressed all of those texts that talk about what we have been delivered for. Mm. And we have, we have not paid significant, uh, sufficient attention to the fact that if we don't walk into what we were delivered for, we weren't delivered at all. The dog that returns to its own vomit has not mm. improved his culinary tradition. <laughs> the sow that returns to the mud. Yeah. You know? Um, but um, the other part of all that is we love, by grace, you have been saved. We love that text that speaks about deliverance as something that happened in the past. And for some reason, we don't give anything like equal weight to all those texts, those far more numerous texts, because I've counted them, that talk about deliverance as that toward which we are pressing, that which comes when Christ returns, or that, that fabulous text at the end of Romans 13, salvation is closer now than when we first believed. I thought it happened the hour I first believed. Well, something happened the hour you first believed. God reached in and pulled you out of the mire of alienation from God in which you had embedded yourself and in which the whole history of of, of the human race had embedded you. But he Mm. pulled you out from that to walk in alignment with him toward a very different future. And that future is consummated when Christ returns. And when we stand before him and he says, well done. So uh, I hope that's what he says. <laughs> He's going to be like, you idiot. <laughs> that's going to be mine. <laughs> like I told you how many times. No, I, I hope that's probably not, not the, I told you so. <laughs> or, or, he knows he's got the rest of eternity to break it to you gently. <laughs> it's not likely to be the first thing. 
I feel like, I mean, I grew up, you know, in the, the Sesame street era where you have Sam Eagle just shaking yes, his head. Yes, <laughs> yes, Sam Eagle. That's going to be me. Gets to heaven. <laughs> just, <laughs> no, uh, you know, yeah, no, no, that's not going to be it. Going back though, for a second, you mentioned that Ephesians too, and I couldn't help but think of verse 10. Exactly. Which, which you've got it in there where it, where it talks about, I'm going to read from the NLT, our, our, our patron. Uh, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this in verse 8. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so no one can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he had planned for us long ago. That reorientation, that's that idea that you're talking about there, right? And exactly. And Ephesians 2.10 is not the last word on the subject. There's all of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Mm. Especially, say, 4.22 and following, where Paul is talking all about the old person that you were called to put off. And the new person, I like to think of as Christ being brought to life in us by the Holy Spirit, but the new person that you were free to put on. And so, you know, I know this, this does fly in the face of, of a lot of hardcore, you know, post-Reformation theology, but it seems that it is just as important that we move into what we were saved for in order to really experience having been saved from anything. So this idea kind of camping on this for a second, because I want to make sure I get the nuances of it. Cause I, I do, I don't think there's a contradiction. I think that there is simply a nuance that has not always gone understood. Well, so we're not saying that we earn our salvation. No, we're saying that God has given it to us, but this idea is it was in his grace. It wasn't because of what we had done and it wasn't because of what we would do. But what we would do would be a response to what he had done. And let's even nuance that further. What he did was so gracious, so generous. It was intended to impel us through gratitude, Mm. to respond to God in the way that we always ought to have responded to God, just by virtue of having the gift of life, Mm. but had not responded to God. And, and, and God's graciousness is such that even though it would have been fine for him to sweep us off the face of the earth with a second flood or, or something more creative, since he promised not to do that again, but he left so many options open. For the future. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Earthquakes, famines. I mean, he could have done whatever. Or my favorite, the mega asteroid. Yeah, m- meteors. <laughs> any of these things. But, but rather than doing that, he, he extended an even greater and costlier gift so that by this second act of grace, he would reawaken, he would awaken the gratitude that wasn't there in the first place. And that would change our relationship to him. It would change how we live before him. It would, it would, it would be the force that if we allowed that tsunami of, of graciousness to wash over us, would impel us forward into um, into living before him in the way that he would deem righteous in the end. To proclaim the virtues, as aretas, to proclaim the virtues of him 
the, the excellence of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yes, uh, if, if, if the chief end of human beings is to glorify God and enjoy him, for, and enjoy, uh, him forever, uh, the, the first act of gratitude is the proclamation of the acknowledgement of the gift. But I, I want to come back to what you said. Go ahead. Um, uh, grace is a gift. Grace is really a pretty vacuous word. Grace is God's um, disposition to help us. Grace is what he gave to help us. But grace in and of itself, you know, what the heck is grace? So I would prefer to name the grace. What is, what is it that God in his favor and his generosity has provided and maybe the thing to answer that with is the possibility of a new life before him Hmm. Um, making that possible by setting behind us and behind him the old life that was alienated from him and lived to provoke him just simply kept provoking his righteousness his goodness, his holiness, by using the gift of life poorly. So maybe we could name the grace as the opportunity to step out of that, to leave that behind, and to live a different life before God, a righteous life before God. Now, it's not really a matter of thinking about strings attached. It's a matter of, are we going to live that new life before God? Have we really received God's gift to us apart from living that gift? Mm. And, and, and this for me is simply the way to hold together everything that New Testament authors say about what God has done on our behalf and everything that they say we are now to do living differently in light of that. So that that second part doesn't become the optional response that we might or might not do and still be saved which I think is an abhorrent doctrine, by the way. I'll go on record saying that. Um, which, which is a abhorrent doctrine? It doesn't really matter what you do. Once you're oh, saved, you're saved. Okay. Yeah, that's that whole free grace idea. Because, that, that, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's the wrong free grace idea. It's, <laughs> but, right. but the gift itself is this new life, a life that will be lived in righteousness and holiness before God all our days. And he's even given us the Holy Spirit as that which empowers and guides us to live that life. This is something that comes out of my work on Galatians. I never really realized how, how important and how closely connected. Um, the part of Galatians we all love to quote when we do theology, Galatians 2, 15 to 21. Mm-hmm. And the rest of Galatians, a lot of which focuses on the gift of the Spirit. And its importance in God's work aligning us with God's righteousness. Mm. So anyway. No, no, no. I want to I, I want to throw an illustration by you because I'm trying to illustrate it in my brain. Let, <laughs> let's say that um, I wanted to go to a concert and I couldn't get a ticket. They were sold out right away. Couldn't get it. A friend of mine comes to me. I've been a jerk to that guy for years and years and years and years. Guy comes up to me, though, he finds out I want to go to the concert. He goes, here's your ticket. Like, you did nothing to deserve this. But now I have to enter into that that concert. I don't just take the ticket and do nothing with it. 
I take the ticket because I want to go to the concert and be a part of that. Is this the this, this same kind of idea that you're talking about here? That's where, a much, that's an excellent analogy. I think, I think that though, that's the idea is that we're entering into something. We have the gift. We didn't earn it. We can't go back and do anything to get their favor um, to earn it, but we are showing the, our, our gratitude by entering in to what they've provided. And then we are, or in essence, by like, I like how C.S. Lewis said it. He said, repentance is not a work. It's simply a description of what going back to God looks like. And I, I love that description because I remember debating a Muslim cleric once. And he said, you have to do, you know, I said, we're saved by grace. I was a young, I was an undergraduate at the time. And he was an older man and, and he'd been around enough Christians. He goes, what do you have to do? And I said, well, you have to, you know, receive the gift. And he goes, what does that involve? And I said, repentance. And he goes, that becomes a work. And then you're not saved by that. And it struck me. I, first of all, I wasn't expecting a Muslim cleric to be able to debate me about this, but it made me stop and think. And that's when Lewis was really a much better guy. He's saying, no, 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 it's not a work. It's a response to that. Just like getting that ticket and going into the concert is a response of, and it's showing the gratitude by entering in to what he has provided. So that, that's a good way. In our pre-show walkthrough, you mentioned that patronage is something that you really wanted to talk about because it's become kind of a popular thing today to discuss this. What do you think, I mean, what are you hearing about this that has brought out this idea? Like you mentioned, you said it's something with pastors today. I mean, what, what have you seen or heard? Yeah, I, 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 I didn't actually um, uh, say I want to talk about it because it was popular. Right? Oh, I said oh, I want oh. to talk about it because it had the most theological punch of anything in this book. Oh, my bad. <laughs> I stand corrected. I removed and, and my I've, genius. And I've already put out that punch. That's, that, that's, that's the punch that says we get over our allergy to works. Mm. We get over our allergy to thinking that somehow... Salvation does not involve God changing our lives entirely into something that is pleasing in God's sight uh, and, and enter a whole different model whereby God's grace still motivates and initiates and empowers everything. That's why I also talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit that Paul foregrounds uh, so clearly, actually, both in Galatians uh, 5 and in Romans uh, 8. as as the engine that God has provided to, to drive this life of the new person. But to see, to see that life as really the gift of deliverance that God has provided. Mm. And you go into the concert, you enjoy the concert, you live differently. And, and, and so there the analogy breaks down. You, right. You've actually, you've become a different person. And you have a full, a completely different relationship with the one who gave you the ticket to that new life. Mm-hmm. And, and the analogy breaks down completely, but you know, what if you just kept dipping out of the concert? You've lost a lot of the gift. Mm. Um, what if you think, oh, it's great that I had this ticket to the concert. I'll go binge Netflix now for a while. Mm. <laughs> yeah. The, the whole purpose, uh, one analogy that, since, since we're throwing analogies around. Let's just keep throwing them around. One analogy that I like because I live in Florida is that of the hurricane evacuation route. Hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we think about, uh, by grace, you have been saved. God has placed me 
on the evacuation route. I'm, I'm, I'm out of, you know, I, I, I'm out of sitting where disaster is going to strike. And if I stayed where I was, disaster was going to strike. My house and my life would have been forfeit because Ian was category five. Mm. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, driving around and getting to that first sign on the highway, evacuation route this way, you don't pull over and say, phew, I've made it. I'm safe now. I've been saved. No, you keep following that evacuation route all the way till you are in the land where the hurricane does not strike. Mm. And that's what God has set me on, mm. all of us on. By grace, I, I have been saved. I've, I've been set on this journey toward salvation. I've been put on this evacuation route. And the Holy Spirit and all of its fruit and all of the virtues that Peter lists in 2 Peter 1, to your faith, add knowledge and moral excellence and brotherly and sororal love and love without boundaries and all the things that I've forgotten. Deliverance is making that journey and arriving at that goal. And God is good. So let's just trust him. And go on the journey without holding on to our doctrines. Well, I was saved back there. That's what's important. Or, you know, if, if, if I'm going to really invest myself in, in, in careful, thoughtful discipleship and help others do so and receive their help in doing so and, and start changing my, my life and my spending practices and how I spend my time so that I'm doing more that reflects, um, putting God's agenda ahead of mine. Well, I got to be careful about that because that sounds like works. Mm. That's just toxic theological thinking. No, mm. that is precisely what gratitude impels us to do. Mm. And that's precisely what honors God and God's gift. Okay, I'm sorry. I've gone to preaching. No, that's okay. That's what we do on this show. <laughs> we go from soapbox to Christmas, bad Christmas analogies, <laughs> a lot of different stuff that's in here. Now, we've, we've talked a little bit about patronage, and I, I don't want to skip over these last two. Kinship. Let's talk about kinship for a moment. We hear the term brother, sister, the family of God, the household of God. Um, people hear that today and they go, okay, yeah, it's kind of passe. A old language doesn't mean anything. Why is it important for us to identify that that was a very real thing in the ancient world? And it still has a role to play within our contemporary society and understanding of church uh, in our theology today. And it still is very powerful in majority world settings mm -hmm. where the conditions that Christian, Christians face now uh, are very similar to what Christians face in the first century. That language becomes becomes the go-to language for the church planters that we call the apostles, mm -hmm. because so many who came into the Christ cult, let's call it that because that's what it looked like to mm -hmm. anyone on the outside, anyone who joined the Christ cult came under scrutiny from their natural families. I mean, for crying out loud, Jesus is saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, it's like, okay, that's a cult. That sounds like a cult. That's pretty it weird. Just, it just does. I, I mean, the Kool-Aid sounds better than blood. Yeah, yeah, that just doesn't <laughs> sound so good right now. 
I mean, the Jewish Secret Service is at the door. They're monitoring us. <laughs> I mean, it's the same idea. And the day came when they were in the first century. There, 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 there would come in the late, sorry, maybe the early second century and following, you know, informers on the Christ cult. What's this that's growing up in our midst? So when Jesus said to Peter and the other disciples, there's no one who has left mother or father or brothers or sisters or children or houses or fields that will not receive in this life a hundredfold mothers and brothers and sisters and children and fields and houses and in the life to come, uh, in the age to come, eternal life. But it was so important with the loss of family connection, um, certainly the loss of family support, you know, uh, the, the, the winning of family disdain, mm. that converts to the Christ cult find in one another people who are willing to take on the roles and responsibility and the level of commitment to one another that blood family typically did and would have done if they didn't convert in the first place. Mm. Um, and by the way, this is very similar to what um, Philo, at least, says Jewish communities did for the Gentiles who converted to the synagogue. Um, they, uh, they welcomed them in and, 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 and in effect, to the, to the brother and sisterhood uh, of this family that wasn't a natural family, but was going to, to take on um, that level of commitment and support um, to sustain people in their new faith. So, yeah, it was, it was vitally important in the first century. It, it came with a bonus, by the way. Because there's a very well-articulated ethic of how brothers and sisters ought to relate to one another. Um, and that ethic overlaps significantly with the ethics we find in the New Testament. Uh, everything Paul has to say about putting competition to the side and cooperation to the fore, uh, about, about preferring one another in honor rather than seeking to establish Precedence over your fellow Christians. Um, forgiveness, freely offered rather than holding grudges. Um, uh, all of these uh, things were, were, were woven into the way Greek and Roman ethicists told brothers and sisters to behave to each other. So there's that, that bonus as well. And we frankly have lost a great deal of the gift of being part of the Christ cult, mm -hmm. uh, when we, we might still say brother occasionally. I mean, we don't in the United Methodist Church because that's just weird. But in some churches, we still talk about brothers and sisters. Um, but when, when we stop living as brothers and sisters to each other because we're related by blood, by the blood of Christ, we, we really denied one another a social network of support and reinforcement and acceptance and what have you that was a vital part of what made the church grow in its earliest centuries. I was talking to you earlier. You um, were zoomed in to the Patronage Symposium. We referred to that. And uh, you weren't there for this part, but they brought in a Muslim woman who had converted to Christianity. Wow. 
And they had her give testimony. If I remember correctly, I I could be misremembering here. It could have been a video or someone could have told us about it. It's all kind of foggy. It runs together. But I do remember, though, what she said. And one of the things that she articulated was she said, when I was a part, when I was a Muslim, I was a part of the community. Right. And she said, but when I became a Christian, I actually was not alone, no longer a part of the community. And therefore she didn't have those patronage ties. And she goes, I became part of the church. And she was actually saying this in a, in a kind of a, not a negative, but it cost her dearly socially in a way that many would be like, oh, of course, of course, of course. But what we, we fail to realize is that she needed then to recreate and have those social networks reconfigured. In her culture, it was absolutely essential because if if you didn't have that, like she would go to the imam if her husband was beating her, yeah, and then he would intercede, um, and and do something hopefully, and and in that case he did, but she said I didn't have that any longer when I became a because her social network was cut off. They did effectively cut her off. I think we have failed to understand that in our modern culture because you could just go to the church down the road. It, we don't have that that interconnectedness of the households that you even mentioned, because honestly, the, the family has been fragmented. It's been torn apart. I mean, the, the devil has come across the, the family pretty hard because he realizes it's the foundation of much of our society and our understanding. And it was in the world of the New Testament, wasn't it? This idea of household was a huge deal in, in, the, in this kinship. Describe how the household was such an important part of the beginning of the church. So I'm, I'm glad you asked or, or, or raised that topic because the kinship ethic seemed to work so well. And the nurturing of, of kind of surrogate family bonds worked so well because no one met in churches. They all met in homes for the first, generally for the first few centuries of the church's life. There wasn't a public building. Um, and, and so you you were welcomed into someone else's house, and on a regular basis, you were welcomed into a new household, and all of those in the household with you were likewise welcomed, and you became how should I say the 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 architectural uh, uh, context of the early church was one that fostered kinship as opposed to membership. Uh, so you, you joined a family, you joined households. This could create problems, not surprisingly in Corinth, where everything seems to have created a problem. Don't you love the church in Corinth? It's oh the one goodness. place you can go and feel good about your own church. <laughs> uh, but in, in any event, so, so rivalries between households and what have you had to be diffused by Paul said, no, no, no. Sure, you got multiple households, but you're all part of one family for crying out loud for five minutes. Would you please? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can totally hear him saying that in his letters. Oh, and and you're you're exactly right. The the splintering of the Christian church has has horribly uh, impacted our ability to be family. And and if there is an agenda for the church in the third millennium. I, I hope high on that agenda is learning to call one another brother and sister again across deep divides. Mm-hmm. I think we don't ever have to be institutionally joined. Mm-hmm. Fine. But if, if Baptists and Methodists and Catholics and Orthodox and 
and and charismatics could could say, you know what, we're we're doing Christianity a bit differently from one another, and let's all be honest, we have our favorite scriptures and we put them front and center in our theology. But if we're also to be honest, y'all have them too. So you're just as scriptural as we are. We just prefer, you know, John three sixteen to everything else. And uh, <laughs> but you're brothers and sisters, and we are too. We are one family in, in, in many different houses. We are not different families and you're going to hell. That all just has to stop. It, it's one of those questions that early on in my Christian ministry, it was much easier to do ministry by saying who was not with us than who was with us. Um, and I started to wonder why we had statements that we did. And I, I remember teaching a Sunday school class um, in my, I think I was just in my late twenties and one man, we were talking about Catholicism and he said, you have to understand they were raised this way. And I went, well, you were raised this way. What, what, <laughs> what differentiates it now? Do you have real disagreements? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I do. He goes, well, they just do what the Pope says. I'm like, you do what James Dobson and Billy Graham say. Um, we all have our popes and cardinals in our, I mean, we just do, mm. we do. And I think God's kingdom is a lot bigger than we realize. Not that mm. doctrine doesn't matter, really does, especially on the fundamental nature of things. But I have found that when I talk with many different Christians and churches, they will say who the enemy is, but they can't, they can say a few words, but they don't understand the nuance of their own position. And I, I and again, I'm not trying to downplay doctrine. Mm-hmm. I, I think doctrine plays a huge role in what we do. I do think, though, that we make doctrine sometimes the supreme. And in doing so, fail to see that people in our own theological camp can't articulate what we might hold so valued. And, and, and so I, I just want us to be careful is all I'm trying to say. I, I mean, some, some more doctrines are quite huge, you know, the very nature of salvation and things like that. But I also think that God is a lot more merciful than we ever understand. I think many people do believe in Jesus and that, that that's what it comes down to. Who do you say I am? I, I think that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. And again, not to downplay, downplay doctrine and our theological differences, but I think that the enemies that we have at the gates are a lot more great uh, at times, and we're killing ourselves inside the camp. Um, and we have to be very, very, very careful of that. So we've talked about honor. We've talked about patronage. We've talked about kinship. Now let's talk about purity. Purity, I... I Before we go to purity. Okay. I mean, I'm not being paid for this, so I can just... No. I can <laughs> That's just right. Neither am I. <laughs> wherever I go, wherever I want. This pro bono stuff, it doesn't work the way the, the, way the host intends. I just, I just wanted to throw out, and, and you might sure. already have mentioned this, so, but it's, it's very important. Our, 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 our cultural proclivity toward individualism, toward the privatization of religion. Oh, yeah. Or what you said earlier, it's me and God. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 it is a huge stumbling block to recovering uh, the scriptural mechanisms for helping one another on that journey to become who God has freed us to be. And, um, and returning to, to a, a real ethic of kinship that we are, we are brothers 
for eternity. You mm-hmm. and I, we are, I just meeting you today, but I'm realizing I'm going to be joined to you forever. So sorry about that. Well, <laughs> that is good. There are going to be other people. <laughs> no, but, but the point is, so let's live now uh, at the level of, of, of intimacy and, and openness and honesty that reflects the fact that God has determined he's put us together forever into his kingdom. So let's help us help each other mm-hmm. be, be better citizens for that kingdom. Let's, let's mess with each other's stuff. Mm-hmm. And when you see me uh, doing something that belongs to the person I should have left behind, take me aside mm-hmm. and help me see that. And I'll do the same for you. And let's also keep reminding ourselves throughout the church where this happens. It's not because David's being a jerk. It's because David's being a brother, hopefully not doing it as a jerk, but being a brother. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and we, we, we are called to reinforce one another's um, um, transformation in Christ mm-hmm. in a setting in which so many other forces, people, media, messages that come to us from our entertainment, from mm. whatever, are trying to shape us in other directions. Mm-hmm. And we can't afford to be on our own fighting all those forces. This goes back to what we were talking about in regard to honor and shame and the the, the social imprinting of, of values and what have you. And if, if we really are serious, we want the trajectory of discipleship. We have to do it together. We have to let down the walls of, well, that's none of your business. Your faith is my business. My faithfulness is your business. And there are multiple scriptures that say that explicitly. Well, it's the one another's, right? It's the All love one another, exactly encourage right. one another. It's it's this idea of mutual accountability within this the the body that I think has, as you mentioned before, the individualization of things that have gone on. And and our culture has just continued to grow that aspect. I think of my kids. Um I remember when we first became parents, I said, my children will never have a television in their room. I'm just never going to do that. And then we get them cell phones because all their peers do. And then they're just on their phone. It's like, it's a million times worse. And yet that each continues to grow their own individuality at the exclusion of the community. Right. Because everything's personalized to them. They can do what they want, see what they want. And there's not the idea of sacrifice. There's not the idea of community. And that's, that's a counter uh, as some have said, call it, uh, it's a counter spiritual formation that's going on. I mean, the world is trying to conform us to its own image and it is trying to form us spiritually. And we have to come up with practices that act as a counter catechesis. Yes. To the, those counter spiritual practices that help bring in that communal aspect. Because what I've seen is by focusing on just the, the G, I don't want to say just the Jesus aspect of it, because people focus on the individuality. Jesus saves you, but saves you into a family or community. And in today, of course, and I just got an email yesterday about this, where people aren't deconstructing, but they're distancing. So, I mean, some people are deconstructing, but others are distancing themselves from the church because they, they, they see that the church is not living up to the ethic that it purports to live up to. 
And therefore there is an injury that's there because the, the church has adopted a worldly method that's there. So this idea of sacrifice, the idea of mutual responsibility and accountability, following the New Testament's admonitions that are there, and that means vulnerability and quite possibly open yourselves up to misunderstanding, to pain. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I go back to Lewis who said, you know, fine, you don't want to be friends. Just lock yourself, lock your heart in a box and bury it. Not let anyone touch it. And by doing so, it will die a thousand deaths. And to, to love is to open oneself up to hurt. And that is in misunderstanding and all of these things. And and this is what God's calling us to do. But moving on to this purity idea, this purity idea, again, we read throughout the Old Testament, purity is everywhere, unclean, unclean, it, it, whether it's talking about after childbirth or emissions or touching a dead body. I mean, you read through Leviticus and it's just one big giant, you know, throwing one towel at you after another because you're dirty. You know, just clean yourself up, clean yourself up. Here it is. Here's another, here's another, here's another. This is the towel you're going to need for this job. This is a huge towel, you know, that kind of thing. Um but we 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 we've kind of lost that idea now. At least that I the, that word has become. I, I, again, we all inherit words with with cultural baggage, mm-hmm. and today we have, of course, the push push back to the so called parody culture. I knew you were going there. Yeah. Well, but but we have we cannot remove ourselves from the idea of purity itself. The Bible talks about this. We're not just talking about sexual purity here. We're talking about not engaging with the idols of our age because they will in some ways defile us. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about this idea and concept of purity and how they would have understood it in the first century and how we need to look at it today. And you bring out some illustrations about dirt in the house that I thought were pretty poignant that my wife went, oh, okay, I got it. <laughs> she goes, but in doing that, and we'll get to this in a moment, you mentioned about just having a pile of dirt in the middle of your home. And that defiles the house. And I said, my wife would, I, I, as I was making a comment, I was like, honey, you would clean that up immediately. That would drive you crazy. She goes, it would, it would. My question is for you, this is, this is my wife talking to me. She says, why wouldn't it drive you crazy? <laughs> and I went, what we have? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and she, she kind of just kept raising her eyebrow like the rock at that moment in time. Like, why right. did not, not do the same for you? But let's go back. First century, purity and now. Well, how is it? What is it? How's it work? Since you brought it up, I mean, just just to to kind of get get a sense of things, um, dirt outside is fine. And by the way, this is not my analogy. This comes from Mary Douglas, a brilliant uh, Old Testament scholar, cultural anthropologist, whose work "Purity and Danger" was foundational for my own thinking about this. The best book on Leviticus I've ever read. "Purity and Danger," great stuff. Uh, anyway, um, dirt outside is fine. That's where dirt belongs. Uh, it's only when you bring it into the house and dump it in the living room that there's a problem. So dirt isn't a problem. It's where the dirt shows up that might present a problem. Uh, uh, another is like food. Food on a plate is fine. Food on the counter might or might not be fine. Mm. Food on the floor, and please don't come back with a five-second rule, is not fine. <laughs> we, do not, we do not spread out our spaghetti on the stairs to eat them. We eat it. Because there is, there, there's a proper place for things. 
And if it's in its proper place, it's fine. It's it's just it's just the where it's where God wants it. And if it's not there, it's not where God wants it. So let's fix it. Let's clean it up. And and everything Leviticus has to say, and and you know, that we encounter throughout both testaments about purity and defilement has to do with making sure everything is where God wants it, because God is a holy God. God is is more concerned about impurity than Mrs. Fleming is about dirt in the living mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. And holiness and uncleanness cannot coexist. And if the holy God is going to live in our midst, we need to to order our lives in such a way that we respect that holiness and that we access it beneficially and never detrimentally. That's where Douglas's book uh, title comes from, uh, Purity and Danger. Um, the, holy, the holy is there. Are we going to um, protect that holiness in such a way that that holy that holiness brings us divine blessing? Are we going to provoke that holiness such that it breaks out against us and incinerates us like that marvelous conclusion to Raiders of the Lost Ark? Mm. That's the power of God right there. Mm-hmm. And in the mind of, of the first century, the typical first century Jew, that's the power of holiness breaking out. So, you know, Leviticus isn't just about you're dirty, you got to clean yourself up. But because God is holy, if you're going to come into his courts, into his presence, you need to do it in a state of purity. So you got to clean yourself up. If you're going to be in the holy land, you need to clean yourself up to a lesser degree. But what we want to do is at all costs, we want to limit and control defilement so that it does not become a provocation to the holy God in our midst, whose presence we, we, we crave and honor and depend upon. So if that makes sense, I mean, we, we, we love the fact that the holy God has, has chosen us as the people with, uh, among whom he's going to pitch his tent, his mm. tabernacle. But God is a picky house guest. <laughs> as it were and we have to make sure that we do not you know so, going back so that's and the other thing i just want to make sure i get out there this isn't just a jewish phenomenon gentile cults also have purity regulations and and rules about defilement so it's not like the gentile who comes to faith reads this and is like what is all this stuff this makes no sense now, it's a whole lot more detailed than anything you'd ever find in a Gentile sanctuary, but it would make sense because they also knew the holy um, was full of power, and that power could bless, and that power could consume. So let's approach it in the way that that power wants, in a state of purity, not a provocative state of defilement. So, so, so here's why I want to go with this, because... You said this, and I want to make sure because I know people are hearing this right now, and some are feeling overwhelmed because oh, you said, right. "No, no, no, not not that the idea of of holiness. Holiness is, as you said, danger. 
I mean, it, it, it's scary. Holiness is scary. And some people think that they have to be clean before they get to God. You mentioned that. you have, Before you access the holy, you have to be cleansed. Now, some people, though, take that in a salvific sense, where I have to get my life together and be cleaned up before I get to God. We're not saying that. That's not what we're talking about right now. I, I want to make sure that we clarify that because I think some people think I got to have it all together before I come to church or before I come to Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. You come dirty there. He cleanses you. This is a response to him. Again, that gratitude, that reciprocity, an acknowledgement of his life, showing through our lives who he is um, through living a holy life. Because as we read in Hebrews, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Be holy, as we read in 1 Peter, be holy as I am holy. To uphold the Lord as holy, which is what got Moses into trouble. He didn't uphold God as holy and therefore wasn't allowed to even enter into the promised land. So help us then to understand from a New Testament perspective, yes, they understood these kind of holiness ideas, but we also need to correct some of the misunderstanding that has been built up that I have to have be holy before I enter in to the presence of God. How does the holiness of God in the Old Testament differentiate or the requirements, let's say, for the whole of holiness that the scripture lays out different in the Old Testament than to where we're at now as we live holy lives. So, um, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, the whole kind of confusion about salvation and holiness. Even under the old covenants, it's not a matter that you have to clean yourself up before approaching God. Exactly. I, I think it's very important that we read Leviticus knowing that that God has already graciously chosen this particular people to deliver from bondage in Egypt, to lead into their own land, and to dwell in the midst of. So if we were going to talk about, you know, what one has to do before salvation for Israel, it, it really wasn't anything except have an ancestor named Abraham whom God loved <laughs> and shows. <laughs> and, and, and so God enters into this, God gives the gift of this covenant to this people and no other nation. So immense favor and, and grace. And living with the holy God in your midst, having been granted this immense favor, you do need to live by some rules. <laughs> there are some things you don't do. Um, and, and, and maybe the, there's an important parallel there because New Testament authors are not reticent to call disciples into holiness mm -hmm. of heart and life. And, and as you, you know, quoted from both Hebrews and first Peter two two books that I, I love to swim in. Um, this is, how, how to put it, this is simply the appropriate way to live in the, in, the, in, in the state of favor that God has blessed us with. Mm -hmm. And it's the way to continue to live in that favor, because holiness never stops being dangerous. Mm. For our God is a consuming fire. And the grace that has been given us is, is, is the gift of being made holy as God is holy. So let's go with it. Mm. And there's always the possibility of resisting that gift. If, if it weren't a possibility, we wouldn't have, well, the letters to Corinth, 
or, or, or any of those uh, catalogs of, say, the works of the flesh. And those who keep doing these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who keep sowing to the flesh will inherit the rottenness of the grave. Corruption is, is so, what's the word, so, so banal a word. Those who keep sowing to the flesh will inherit where the flesh ends up. A mm. pile of, you know, rotten meat. Mm. But those who keep sowing to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Because holiness conveys blessing. Holiness cannot live with persistent un- unholiness, persistent mm. defilement. Where it's all different in the New Testament is we don't think about, um, we don't think about God's holiness in, in terms of emissions or menstrual cycles or, um, food. Um, we, 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 and there's a good reason for that, by the way. And it's called bacon. It's called bacon. That's fabulous. <laughs> you were you were literally waiting an hour and a half to pull that out. I just love bacon. I'm so glad that God gave us bacon. <laughs> I do. Every time I have it with my family, I'm like, he made all foods clean. He just made all foods clean. <laughs> I'm so grateful for bacon. Anyway, going back to what you said. No, no, I, I'm really glad that I, I took you to your happy place. <laughs> hey, you know, bacon, we'll, we'll eat Wilbur from Charlotte's Web. I mean, that just, oh, bacon okay. is so, yeah. um, keep going. So mo- moving on from bacon, um, <laughs> because in Leviticus, uh, it, it's clear you are taught as, as God's covenant people to make a distinction between clean and unclean foods, mirroring the way God made a distinction between clean and unclean peoples. Mm-hmm. He chose you to be clean to himself, apart from all the other nations. But of course, in Christ, Paul is the champion of this. Uh, that now uh, that distinction between Jew and Gentile is rendered null and void because we all enter together into what God has done for all of us in the Messiah. And with the erasure of the distinction between Jew and Gentile, obviously the erasure between the symbols of of the meaningfulness of that distinction go away. So you can eat bacon and mm. be clean in God's sight because the, 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 the foods were always just a mirror of God's separation of one people for himself for that period between Moses and the coming of the seed of Abraham. So now uh, the, the focus is rather on, on the righteousness and holiness of God. Uh, the, the virtue of God, the character of God, and the way God wants that righteousness, that justice, to be reflected in his people. So you find Paul and other New Testament authors using the language of purity and of pollution to talk about um, virtuous attitudes and practices or defiling attitudes and practices. Uh, so. Malice, envy, uh, these things become defilements of the body of Christ. Mm. They become the new pollutants, as it were, 
mm. of, of a body, just like emissions were uh, a defilement of a body. But now, now it's all, um, it, it all has to do with whether or not we're reflecting the fruit of the spirit or the work of the flesh, whether, it, whether we're living in a state of holiness slash purity or defilement. The hard part with that, I mean, it's easy to identify who's in and out, what, what food they're eating. That's easy. But those other things, envy, malice, those aren't so noticeable because they can even be um, masqueraded as, as virtues. Like, I, I just care about you, brother, and I'm, I'm afraid you're getting a big head. And the reality is I got envy and I don't like the prestige you're getting. Yeah. You know? So how do we help people, though, to see these? these new defilements, new pollutants, if you will, in our contemporary culture today without making a legalistic line in the sand. Well, that's, that's good. I, I don't know that we have to, maybe, maybe I'm just misunderstanding you. I don't know that we have to see them in the culture around us today. I think we just need to see them in ourselves. Mm. And, 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 and you see, we have to, we have to decide wholeheartedly, are we in this to become the people God wants to make us? Mm. Or are, are we in this to become the people we want to make ourselves? So in, in that case, to, to be the one who's going to be recognized as the top dog. That's mm. not who God wants to make of me. That's who, who I want to make of myself. Mm. So, and if we, we have to be brutally honest with ourselves because God is not mocked. Um, and, and once we make the decision not to be double-minded as James warns, but single-minded, I want to become what God wants to make of me. Hmm. Then we're going to have the Holy Spirit's help discerning when envy or malice is motivating us rather than the Spirit himself. Uh, I think, uh, and, and it, it, it just requires um, clear knowledge of what we're committed to and absolute honesty with ourselves about what we're committing to. I think you make a very good point. When we go before God and when we're being very honest with ourselves and transparent before him, I think he brings those things to the surface. Yeah. As my mentor used to say, it's whatever the Holy Spirit puts his, puts his finger on it. Um, I, I was a young man and I remember him talking about how um, if you cherish evil in your heart, he won't answer your prayer. Like it's, I think it was Psalm 66, 18 or mm. so, something along that line. And, and I said, well, okay, I need to make confession of my sin. And then you start going down the road where you start, you know, doing an inventory of, Years and years and years, if you're not careful, you could be obsessive about it. And I said, well, how far do I go back? And I, you know, what's the shelf life on this thing? And I was, of course, a young man. You're going back to when you were a young child. And, and he said, you know, it's whenever the Holy Spirit puts his finger on that. That's mm -hmm. when you need to do it. And, and that, was a good, that was good for me because I, I wanted to be exhaustive. But at the same time, you can drive yourself mad just trying to go through everything. And I think when we are being open and honest, God will reveal that he'll bring it to the surface of what that is and correct that motive. And that's not altogether easy, especially in a culture today that does even in the church exalt celebrity 
exalts accomplishment, exalts talent rather than character and sacrifice and faithfulness and all of these things. But you brought our attention back really to the world of the New Testament and how Christ offered an alternative. I mean, it was an upside down kingdom. It was a reorientation of what these the status and the honor, all of those things were he upended. And we're still trying to live into that today without adapting these worldly models of honor and prestige and status and, and how the world goes about things. As we end our show, we often like to give people what we call the water bottle for the week. What's the one thing that they can sip on, that truth of God that they can sip on and draw nourishment from? What's a water bottle that they could sip on for this week? Wow. That's fabulous. So I suppose I would I would I would encourage folks to go to Romans 6 and to read it again, thinking about what we spoke about today in terms of living for God and, and where, where living for God fits in to our view of salvation. What does it mean to be a saved person? Uh, because that's where we we encounter Paul talking about dying with Christ to a whole way of life, rising with Christ to a newness of life, where we encounter him talking about presenting our bodily parts. There's just no good one word for members. Present your members, you know, <laughs> present your life in the body no longer as tools to do what is sinful, but as tools for justice, tools for righteousness. Uh, offer it no longer to sin, but to God. This, this, this vision of transformation of a, of a very different kind of life. Because in the end, I think that is the best description of what it means to be saved. It is the best description of, of what we have been saved from and saved for. And I would just encourage people to keep sipping on the idea that that's where salvation is. It's in moving toward living in alignment with, with that vision. Hmm. Romans 6. It's a good word, brother. And I want to thank you for coming on Apollos Water. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Travis. That was a thoroughly enjoyable and insightful conversation. I mean, talking about honor, patronage, kinship, purity, talking about grace, talking about how we are to live in the midst of this world, how we've been so conditioned to pursue worldly ideas of success rather than biblical ideas of honor to know what it means to live as a faithful believer in this world. It's, it's a conversation that hopefully that it is opened your eyes to the truth of the scripture 
in an even greater way so that you might be able to apply it to your life and use it as a grid to run through all of our motivations and aspirations that we hold to and that we've adhered to and that we've put terms in front of like biblical, hoping to baptize these ideals that are really not biblical at all. But God calls us to be faithful and he calls us to be fruitful where we are. And it's our prayer that this conversation will help you to be able to be both. I do really enjoy having conversations like this. And these kind of conversations can happen only because of people like you. I mean that. We can't do this ministry without your help. We're trying to raise an extra $4,000 a month in support so that we can provide content like this and do so much more. We believe that God has called us to this ministry and he keeps opening doors, but we need that financial support to be able to do that. We have dreams of creating the Apollos Watered Academy to nourish engaged Christians like yourself so that they might be able to fulfill the mission of God where they are and live biblically faithful and fruitful lives. If you would like to partner with us, simply click the link in your show notes and give whatever the Lord lays on your heart. If something from this episode is stuck out to you, shoot me an email, travis at apolloswater.org. I'd love to hear from you and we'll read it on the air. With that in mind, that's it for today's show. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for watering the world and I want to thank you for listening. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.